A myth is a widely held belief that is false. A myth is a widely held belief that is false. And there's a common myth out there that followers of Jesus and even people who are not following Jesus grab onto and believe that is true, but it is completely false. And the myth is that Christians have their lives all together. That Christians have their lives all together. And what I mean by that is there's no messes, everything is good, all is fine. And that myth in this moment this morning is preventing some people who have never attended church who live in our community to come in the front door. That's how strong the myth is. They believe in order to come to a church, in order to give their lives to Christ, they have to have their lives all together, and they're working desperately hard in their own strength to try to get it all together so that they could come to God. That myth causes many believers to give up or be discouraged because they feel like if I was truly following God like I should, my life would be all together and it's not. It's a myth. It's a lie. And this morning we're going to look at a truth that is needed for us and those outside these walls today. We are in a series called A Life Worthy of the Gospel. We're learning to live a life worthy of the gospel. And through this series, I'm going to suggest four ways that we do that coming from the book of Philippians. Last week, we looked at thinking eternally. How we think eternally helps us to live a life worthy of the gospel. Today, we're going to look at something that crushes the myth, and that is to walk humbly. That's what's required. Not that we have our lives all together, but that we walk humbly in the midst of whatever faces us. Contrary to the myth that Christians have their life all together, what is really needed is simply for us to walk humbly. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Philippians chapter 2. I'll be covering verses 11, 1 to 11 this morning. And if you're using the Bible that's in the seat in front of you, I'll be on page 1040. A word about what we're going to talk about this morning, humility. Humility is not necessarily thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not necessarily thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's seeing yourself the way God sees you. Nothing more, nothing less. It's seeing yourself as you truly are. It's a freedom from pride and arrogance, but biblical humility is even more than that. It's grounded in the nature of who God is and who we are because of who he is. And often because of that, humility in a Christ-like way is characterized by a genuine gratitude. Preacher John Stott says this, as a Christian, pride is your greatest enemy and humility is your greatest friend. In the Bible, there are analogies and examples of spiritual maturity. There are pictures that God gives us in his word of how we are supposed to live that remind us what growing as a Christian is like, what growing as a Christian is all about. 
Things like a tree, things like a plant, things like babies growing and developing. These are pictures the Bible uses to teach us how to grow spiritually. And what we are supposed to do as believers is create environments in our hearts, create environments in our churches where the Holy Spirit could come and help us grow. That's what our role is, to create these environments. And if you were to ask me, what is the most important character trait to create an environment where people can grow spiritually, without a doubt, I would say humility. Humility is the most important character trait to grow spiritually. And it's no wonder that Paul wanted to emphasize this in the text that we see before us. Humility he desires to be among us because he knows we need that in order to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Humility is necessary for spiritual growth. You see, there's this longing in Paul's heart. Paul sees something in his mind's eye And he wants all the people of God to live in this way. And what he sees is the church of Jesus Christ walking humbly, living a life worthy of the gospel. And he helps us out by giving us a supreme example of how to do that. Let's look at the first two verses of chapter 2. It says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That verse one, those words, if, if then there's any encouragement, if any consolation, if the fellowship with the Spirit, those are rhetorical ifs, of course, There's encouragement in Jesus. Of course, there's fellowship of the Spirit in Jesus. Of course, there's affection and mercy in Jesus. Jesus gives us all that. And what Paul is doing here is he's picturing a united church. Because a church that feeds off of those things, encouragement from God, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, affection and mercy, becomes a church that is unified. Verse 2 says, to make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, uh, united in spirit, intent in one purpose. These are unifying terms. You see, Paul knows that in order to get a church unified, you don't just come and preach on unity. We're too broken for that. In order to get a church unified, you preach on looking to Jesus. And I encourage you this week to look to Jesus. I encourage you this week to do what we sang in that new song that the worship team led us, to behold Jesus. We don't use that word often today, but it's an amazing word. To behold means to look and to embrace with your attention. To behold Jesus. A church that does that will be filled with great joy. 
A church that does that will be filled with love. A church that does that will be filled with purpose. The longing of Paul's heart is to see a church unified in love and purpose, collectively living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now in the rest of the passage, he gives clarifying language of what he really means by that. He drills down and says, this is what it should look like. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility is so key to grow spiritually, to get ourselves out of the way. And he says here, Interestingly enough, in verse 4, everyone should look out not only for their own interests. See, he knows that we will automatically do that. We as human beings have a default to look out for our own interests and desires. We do it automatically. We don't have to be told. And he says, don't do that alone, but also look out for the interests of others. To get ourselves out of the way so much so that the concerns of others affect us more than the things that concern ourselves. He's saying that is the way to true life. Can you imagine what a church would look like if they did that? Could you imagine what it would look like if every single person in this room, myself included, regardless of what we are going through, when we walk in the doors of Crossview Church, would shelve all of our own concerns, all of our own struggles, all of our own difficulties, all of the things that we are thinking about that affect us, that plague us 24-7, that they're always thinking about. Imagine if we shelved that and said, this morning, in this moment, when I walk into this place, what I want to do is learn about the concerns of my brothers and sisters and be a source of encouragement for them above what I'm dealing with. Can you imagine what that would look like? That's what Paul was seeing. And he knew that if that would happen, not only would the church grow closer to Christ, but they'd also be a beacon of light to those around us. Now some would say, Dan, you're kidding yourself. That would never, ever happen. And the truth is, we do fail to serve God perfectly. But the good news is, Jesus died for self-absorbed, self-glorifying, self-promoting people like us. And he doesn't want us just to stay there but he wants us to grow into Christ-likeness. He wants to meet us in that place, give us grace, mercy, and power, and transform us that we would be more like Jesus. Some people get the come and meet me in this spot part, but forget that he doesn't want us to stay in that place. Paul is not trying to give an intellectual debate. He's saying, I want you to see something. I want you to cast your vision I want you to see something that will empower you to live totally countercultural where you live. 
Because Paul knows that if the church of Philippi that this letter was written to does that, and the church of Crossview in Wisconsin Rapids does that, does that, many would come to know Jesus and life would be lived to his glory, which is life at its best. However, Paul knows how hard that is for us. He knows that 24-7 we are filled with thoughts of ourselves. He knows we are hardwired to think about our own interests. Paul knows it'll take a lot for us to get to that place, to walk humbly, placing others above ourselves. And so he gives us an example to follow. He says, look to Jesus. He says, behold your Savior and Lord. Look at verse 5. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Are you kidding me? Really? We can do that? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Do what you see. Another way of reading this is let this be your mindset. Let this be your aim of life. Let this be what you do more than anything else. Have this mindset among yourselves. Adopt the same attitude, the same way of living, the same way of life, the same manner of how Jesus lived on earth. Adopt that as the way you live. And he's not just speaking to individuals. He's speaking to the community of the church. All of you, he says, need to live a life worthy of the gospel, to follow this amazing, supreme, ultimate example. Jesus set aside his divine rights and his prerogatives to come and enter into the world of humanity. And he made obedience to the Father his utmost importance above all things, including ministry. Let's look at the humility of Jesus in three snapshots in the verses that follow. First, we're going to look at verse 6, where we're going to see the most humble expression. You want to see humility expressed. Here it is, the most humble expression the world has ever known. Verse 6, talking of Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Let's unpack that. There's some amazing, doctrinal, important Christian things in that one verse. That one verse is loaded with theology that every Christian needs to understand. So we're going to go through this. It's important for the Christian life to get this. That phrase, existing in the form of God, touches on two huge things that all believers must understand. Here he touches first on the fact that Jesus never had a beginning. He was never created. He always was. He pre-existed. No beginning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit always were. They never, ever were created. They never had a start. They never had an origin. They never had a beginning. They always were. And we can't wrap our minds around that. It's because we're human. It's because we're created. You see, he's the creator and God. We're the creation in humankind. 
There's enough in this book to give us a relationship with God and all we need to grow in him, but we will never, ever, ever know God exhaustively. If we could figure him out exhaustively, he wouldn't be God. Because we hold the place of creation, finite human being, and he holds the place of God of the universe creator, we will never ever totally figure him out. So when we hear things like he had no beginning, it blows our minds and we can't understand it. And we have to say, yes, he is God. And we trust what's said about him in this word holds more authority than my personal thoughts and experiences. He pre-existed. There was never a point in time when Jesus didn't exist. We see this all over the New Testament. One spot is John chapter 1. It says, he was with God in the beginning, he being Jesus. Jesus was, God, was with God the Father in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. Jesus is the creator. He was never created. This point alone separates Christianity from many false cults and false religions. And we see this truth laid out throughout the New Testament. Again, Hebrews chapter 1 shows us this as well. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. Not only is he creator and sustainer, but he's also God. He did all that as God. It says in the form of God. He's not saying Jesus appeared in the form of God or Jesus appeared as God. He is saying Jesus is God. His very essence, his very nature is God. The word form here doesn't mean appearance or outward shape. Rather, it means his inner nature. His inner nature is God. And Paul is teaching an essential truth for the Christian life that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He had to be fully God to withstand the wrath of God on the cross, overcome our sin and rise again. He had to be fully human to take on our sin and pay the penalty that human beings were supposed to pay. And it wasn't that he was 50-50, half God, half man. He was both, fully God, fully man. Again, another mystery that we're not going to wrap our minds around fully. Glory to God causes us to worship. Say, he's God, we are not. We're part of a group of churches called the Evangelical Free Church, and we have 10 points, 10 statements of faith that mark what we believe. And this is statement number four. It says, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. God who came in human flesh. Fully God and fully man. One person, two natures. This is important. The church has defended this throughout the ages. And it's important because it's commonplace for us to hear false things like, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good man. Or in a conversation that I had just the other week where they said, you know, it doesn't really matter what Jesus was in terms of human or not. What matters is the idea of Jesus and the things that he taught. That's what really matters. No. Like the church that's gone before us, as followers of Jesus, we must wisely, lovingly, but boldly 
defend the glory of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully human. As one Bible commentator stated so well, we must teach these essential truths to our children who are growing up in a world that is fine with having a phantom Jesus. Let me say that again. Parents take note. Church take note. We must teach these essential truths to our children who are growing up in a world that is fine with a phantom Jesus. We hear things like this all the time. He was a good teacher. And they must wisely and lovingly be challenged. It's important to establish the God nature, human nature of Jesus. And it's critical for the rest of the journey in this passage as well. He says in the bottom part of verse 6, this God, man, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. This is why Jesus is our model for humility, our model for others above ourselves. We will never fully comprehend God of the universe who created it all, who can end it all like that, who has the power that we can't even fathom, comes to earth in the form of a baby and lets humankind change his diaper. That's humility. Then he lives the perfect life that he told us we're supposed to live but knows we can't. So he steps in and does it for us. Lives in perfection. Then he goes to a cross. And that one who was perfect, who was holy, who lived in the only way that he wanted us to in sinless perfection goes to the cross and then what happens? Then he becomes our sin. He takes the sin of all humanity, past, present, and future, upon himself and then pays our penalty as God the Father pours out his wrath. Do you understand the humility involved with this? Jesus did not consider being God grounds for getting something, but for giving something. Not to be exploited, or other translation says, not to be a thing to be grasped. He could have clutched onto his God right. He could have grasped his benefit of king of glory. But Jesus lived humbly in these things. If there was anyone who had the right, it was him. But he lived in this way. He did these things to show us humility. And now Paul says, look at him. Behold him, walk humbly. This is what true humility looks like. What true love for one another looks like. What true service to one another looks like. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time not grasping on to the second blessings in my life. There's things that God gives us like family and spouses and marriages and jobs and enjoyments and hobbies and activities and all these great things to enjoy. But they're second place blessings as we talked about last week. Jesus is supposed to hold first place in our life and everything else second. It's hard for me not to take those second place blessings and grasp onto them like they're first place. And that's a hindrance to humility and service. I look at things like a healthy church ministry and I grab onto it. 
I look at things like a ministry role or function, like preaching and grab onto it. I look at the idea of leaving a ministry legacy and I grab onto it. And the Spirit of God convicts me and saying, you need to let go of that. And you know, when he meets me in that place, it's hard. It's painful. But he fulfills me with such a great peace and presence. Because he says, now I'm doing the work. You know, Dan, your ministry, I've seen your ministry, Dan. Nah. Let me do the ministry. We need you, Jesus. Do you have a hard time grasping on to the things of this life? We live in a country and culture that loves their rights. I have the right to do whatever I want. Jesus calls us to something better, to give up our rights like he gave up his right. He had a right to being God. He calls us to something greater, to relinquish the things we want, to relinquish our desires, to relinquish our lights, rights and live for him so that we find true peace and true joy. Have you ever given up your rights to gain Jesus in his ways? Have you ever relinquished your right to be mad at someone who wronged you and say, God, I can't figure out the pain is too great, but I give it to you and I let you bring healing and do what you want with it? Have you ever relinquished your right to hold a grudge against somebody that wronged you? Have you ever relinquished your right to call someone out when you know you're right and they are wrong? And instead of doing it, say, you know what, God? I give that to you. I, let, I want you to teach that person that. I'm going to shut my mouth and pray. God, you move and do it. I give you the right for me to even go call them out. Have you relinquished your right to live however you want to live? I want this, so I'm going to get it. I want this, I'm going to do it. Imagine what marriages and family relationships and friendships and church brotherhood and sisterhood would look like if we followed Jesus' example and relinquished our rights, did not take their rights to be exploited or grasped onto. Sometimes we have this lie that we think our soul fulfillment comes when we have our rights upheld. But the truth is, the way of Jesus fills your soul in a way no human right could ever do it. Benefits of this world can't fill your soul like Jesus Christ can. Can you move from being a grasper to being a giver? Can we give up our rights to human exaltation and promotion in order to be more of what God desires his church to be? To treat every human relationship with love, respect, humility, and care, and then say, Jesus, you get the promotion. 
Jesus, you get all the accolades. Jesus, you get all the comments of people saying, look how cool they are. Jesus, you get all the promotion and glory. We need Jesus to live that way. We need the gospel to live that way. Jesus in his perfect life and atoning death gives forgiveness, new life, and power to live like this. In him we also see the most humble action. Look at verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, emptying himself, making himself nothing. Jesus did not hold on to his divine rights and privileges. He veiled his deity. He didn't give up his godliness. He veiled his deity, as A.W. Tozer says, he did not void his deity. Remaining what he was, God, he added what he was not, humanity, when he came to earth. He added humanity and he's not surrendered, he did not surrender his deity, and he also hasn't surrendered his humanity to this day. He ascended as fully God, fully human. This was a permanent act. Theologian Wayne Grudem says this, Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever and ever and ever. He did this in order to save. It required a level of humility we will never understand. There was a missionary who served in a country in Africa in the 1930s and the 1940s, and he would go into different villages within this country, in this region, he found this one village that had an interesting way of how they named the leader of their village, how they named the chief in that area. And the way they did it is the strongest man in the region became chief. And they had all the accolades for this person. So there was some sort of contest to rule. And then when you became the strongest man in that region, you adorned this headdress that made you chief. You took on different things of the village to reflect you in leadership. And then there was a day where a man fell in the only well that there was in the village, about 50 feet down and was injured and they didn't know how they were going to get him out well the leader of the village being the strongest man in the region took off the headdress laid down the accoutrements of leadership crawled into the well rock by rock clinging to the side getting to the bottom put the injured man on his back and crawled out. He did what no one else in the region could do. That's what Jesus did for us. And verse 7 says, He gave up his divine right to be a servant, to enter into broken humanity. The God of the universe identifies with the lowest of society. Imagine what would happen if we followed this example and walked humbly, posturing our lives at church, at home, in the world we live with this same attitude of Jesus? What if each of us did not seek to be elevated where people would notice us, but instead live simply to humbly serve others?
The last two years I've spent in a program for church leaders to be renewed and refocused. And one of the biggest things they hammer in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, thankfully, is humility. And they ask us a series of questions that we have to continually reflect on. And I took a few of those questions and kind of tweaked them so that they apply to your life. And I want to ask you these questions as well. In my life, what am I grasping onto more than Jesus? How do I handle failure, opposition, or loss? What would it look like to live humbly instead of chasing after things that boost my ego? How is Jesus inviting us to learn from his humility? I've spent the better part of two years pouring over these questions, letting God root in me things that are difficult to face. But it's been one of the most glorious, freeing, loving things ever. Some of you need to take a picture of that screen and spend some time this week mulling over these questions. What are you grasping onto that isn't Christ? And could it be that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are inviting you to a greater life? A life that says you can let go of these things and it's going to be okay. You don't need to have popularity. You don't need to have approval. You don't need to have all the false things you try to build up to make yourself feel worthy. He can come into those places. As we close, we see that Jesus had the most humble mission. In doing all this, Jesus carries out the most humble mission. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' whole life on earth was marked by humility. When he was born, he came into a stable in a manger that was filthy. When he died, he went to a cross. He humbled himself to the point of death. This means that Jesus humbled himself voluntarily. Herod did not humble Jesus. The Roman soldiers did not humble Jesus. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they did not humble Jesus. No one can humble Jesus. He is God. He humbled himself. We are not to look at this passage or the things that we look at around Easter and feel sorry for Jesus, like he's going to be pitied somehow. Jesus stands over us as God. We don't stand over him. And he humbled himself to save us, to change us. And he invites us to his way of life. He invites us to humble ourselves. He humbled himself how far? From glorious, hum- glorious heavenly worship, the creator of all the universe, to a cross. The most humiliating, exposing death ever imagined. And the original people that read this letter in Philippians, they knew what Paul was talking about. They seen the horrors of crucifixion. 
We become so familiar with the term cross, we tend to domesticate how horrible it was. Historians say when Jesus was on the cross and the crucifixion ended, you could not even recognize it was a human being. That's how bloody and brutal it was. The original ones hearing this letter in the church of Philippi Philippi lived in this Roman colony where they knew how horrible crucifixion was, including the Roman emperors, the people inflicting horror. They knew how horrible crucifixion was. They passed a law that a Roman citizen could not even be crucified. Those that inflict hardship, horrors, suffering, said that's off the table. That's a little crazy. Jewish people believed anyone crucified was cursed. This verse shows us the rock-bottom place Jesus went when he embraced humility. And it also shows us the level of Jesus' obedience to God and love for us. The cross was a total shameful embarrassment, yet here is the Lord of glory, fully God, who never had a beginning, dying on a cross that we may have eternal life. He endured the shame and the agony, receiving God's wrath for humanity's sin. The most humble mission anyone could ever think of. And Paul says, if you want to know what it means To walk humbly, look at Jesus. Behold him, church. Jesus is God. This man is God. Look at 9 to 11. For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's read that cautiously, because we could read that and miss the point. We could read that and say, well, of course he can humble himself like that. He's God. He should humble himself like that if he loves us so much with almost a prideful arrogance. The closing reminds us Jesus humbled himself and God exalted him to his rightful place. We will never be able to fully grasp the greatness of Jesus and what he did, but it should motivate us to humble living. It should motivate us to the glory and the humility that Jesus, fully God and fully human, loved us so much and empowers us to do the same, that we may know him more. There's a pastor, author, and professor in our denomination named Eric Rivera, who he and his wife went through an excruciating trial. They still are. And he said, you know, what I found is there's two ways to deal with human suffering. There's two ways to handle suffering when it comes into your life. One is to embrace humility and run to Jesus with it. The other is to turn your back on God and try to handle it on your own. And then he talks about the people in his church in Chicago that he saw who in really, really, really difficult times embraced humility in the midst of walking through a trial. 
he talks about these people in church who endure pain on a regular basis, physically, emotionally, mentally, and have chosen to follow Jesus and walk humbly. And he wrote this about these people. He said, grief is more than a casual acquaintance for these people. It's a deep personal relationship. And these walk in humility. These dear ones will tell you how God pulled them out of their worst. And they will tell you how much the risen Jesus means to them and how God's presence sustains them hour by hour. They are often the mighty prayer warriors of the church, though they would hate to be called that. They are often the ones who speak scripture as a second language. They have a kind of peace in the midst of brokenness that only comes from seeing Jesus in the midst of their mess. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean you have life and it's altogether perfect. To be a follower of Jesus means that you see Jesus in the midst of the mess and you embrace him and you walk with him humbly, living a life worthy of the gospel in all your daily interactions. The Old Testament Micah summed it up beautifully like this. He said, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Want to know what to do? Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray to that end.